Hello and welcome to Against the Law, the myth-busting ancient history podcast. I'm Xenia. I'm interested in all things Roman, and I have a bit of a crush on the Emperor Hadrian. And with me is Alison, Barney and Flo. My name's Alison. I'm into comedy and ancient Greek stuff. Hi, I'm Barney, and my main interest is the ancient Near East. That's Babylon and Assyria and Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers. Hello, I'm Flo. I'm not a historian, but I love to learn from the best. So hopefully you, the listener, and I can learn together. What's in the news? Bats have had a dreadful time in PR this year, haven't they? Bats have had a really bad time in PR. In fact, this is probably... Batman is particularly upset, I've heard. But I saw this pointed out that, you know, Batman has is an extremely wealthy man. Batman's throwing all these crims in prison when he could be opening up, like, therapy and rehab centres. I don't like that. He needs to think about how he's using his money. I tell you, who has been using her money for good rather than evil. Who's that? Dolly. Dolly Parton. Oh, what a legend! Did you did you hear the joke from her press team that the uh, the Moderna vaccine uh, that she's part funded is is quite is quite effective? It's nine to five percent effective. Oh yes. <laughs> It sounds like we've established that what's in the news is this big pandemic, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And is this the first pandemic in history? Wasn't the, wasn't the Spanish flu, I want to say, 100 years prior to the outbreak of coronavirus? And people were facing much of the same issues, so lockdown and people refusing to wear masks. And there's there's um, contemporary comics at the time of people refusing to wear masks in public. How did people used to deal with pandemics? Because you couldn't have a vaccine in ancient Greece or in, or in Roman times. You didn't. I presume there wasn't a method of vaccinating vaccinating people. True, vaccinations very much came up a little bit later. I actually don't know when, so that's a question I'd like to kind of turn back to the group. I um, think it was a smallpox thing. I think that a dairy made with smallpox or cowpox was given a very small dose of something because it was quite common to catch cowpox, I think, if you were working in farms. So it was noticed that, that these dairy maids weren't catching smallpox because they'd already had cowpox, which was the lesser of the two or something. Am I right? Is that a vague memory of something that I've remembered? Yeah, my parents once took me to Edward Jenner's house. Um, he's the guy who came up with or like noticed this immunity in um, farm maids who were milking the cows. And then um, I don't know how he convinced people, but he managed to convince people to get injected with cowpox um and then they were immune to smallpox so that was in 1796 yeah wow that's earlier than you'd think sorry can we confirm edward jenner any relation to the jenners of of modern day royalty or or no my interest is genealogy alison so i'll look into that thanks flo appreciate it no problem (laughs) 
Um, but there's also um, Lady Mary Wortley Montague. She was the um, wife of the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, actually at around the same time, just a little bit earlier than Edward Jenner. And the Ottomans had already found out about the, the smallpox vaccine um, and they were trying to get everyone vaccinated. So she tried to bring that back to the UK. She got her own children vaccinated and she kind of demonstrated this to the royal court. But they were like, how dare you? Don't infect children deliberately. Um, so, yeah, that didn't go down very well when she tried to introduce it. I think I probably would be a little bit um, tentative going forward. Yeah, I wouldn't be. I, I would have to have. You know, it's got to be one of those trials where you get like five thousand quid and a and a sleep in stage. You know what I mean? I wouldn't, I wouldn't readily sign up for that sort of thing. But most procedures that we think of as being absolutely insane to think about, you know, they've got to start somewhere. People operated on themselves for things. There was a man who tested his theory that the bacteria H. pylori, Helicobacter, whatever that that caused stomach ulcers and so to prove that it did he drank some I think he got a Nobel Prize I mean that's a lot of effort for a Nobel Prize that's dedication right there I actually found out the other day that um there's evidence of surgery from the Neolithic period Ooh. Um, they've found quite a lot of from all over the world thousands of skulls um with bits of bone cut out of them oh trepanning so yeah trepanning's this weird thing isn't it where where they um cut like a little hole into the bone of the skull they peel back a flap of skin and then like cut the cut into the skull and then put the flap of skin back and, and you just carry on your life as normal that's right isn't it yeah exactly so they were trepanning back in the day like 3000 bc sort of thing before that 4000 around that kind of time i'm quite glad that i live in modern day um medicine because I I would definitely have been trepanned because I get migraines quite a lot. So somewhere between uh, the ancient Neolithic and Spanish flu we've got a bunch of other presumably deadly de diseases that have struck down people across the world right? Do we know what the first recorded pandemic is or, or even epidemic? In ancient times they didn't really have pandemics in the same way um, and if we look at the etymology of the word pandemic we have pan which means all and demos, which means people. So it's kind of affecting everybody. It's it's everywhere. Um, but the word epidemic, uh, epi means like upon, uh, and demos again means people. So it's it's a bit more specific. Pandemics are kind of a modern phenomenon where a kind of epidemic can go global uh, via things like planes, ships, etc. So epidemic is like all of London has diarrhea, and pandemic is like the whole world has diarrhea. Exactly. Okay, thank you for putting that into frame of reference, I understand. So you might find that an epidemic could potentially be transferred from place to place, but then it would just be an epidemic in that other place as well. You don't really have the globalised scale of a pandemic. Biblical plagues, those were more to do with um, God's wrath, wasn't it? And was that common um, across, across ancient history to consider a plague or a pandemic? Um, the, uh, as a response from God for bad behaviour or to teach people a lesson? 
So this is absolutely the case. You're right. In ancient Greek times, um, there was some kind of scepticism about the gods by the time we get to kind of classical Greece in the fifth century. Um, but in the kind of more ancient epic literature, so Homer, for example, uh, the first book of the Iliad literally begins with um, the Greek general Agamemnon manages to offend the god Apollo, who then naturally, as he is the god of health, decides to send a horrible plague to punish all of the Greek army for his transgressions. And I suppose, I don't know if if, the, if there was germ theory that existed in ancient history. Were people aware of how germs spread at all? Because now we define medicine and, and disease by, oh, this disease is aerosolized, so we, we get it by breathing in what you breathe out. But but was there any kind of germ theory or was it just a, oh, you've been selected as a as a badden by Apollo, therefore you're suffering? Wasn't um, germ theory preceded by miasma theory, which I think has its roots in in the ancient world, in ancient Greece? So miasma was the idea of kind of pollution from something bad that could happen kind of in your general area. So it might be someone being sick. But it could also be someone who's committed a murder or someone who's died in the household. You'd suffer from this thing called miasma, which means pollution, which would essentially mean that you weren't allowed to go into places of worship and kind of be near the gods for a specific amount of period, specific <laughs> for a specific period of time um, until you had kind of been seen to, to have healed from that miasma. Were there any, because um, we hear of great philosophers or great teachers or or orators, but we don't hear too much about great physicians. Are there any great physicians that, that you guys can think of? In ancient Greece, there was Hippocrates, wasn't there? And um, doctors today still take the Hippocratic Oath, don't they? Oh, that's right. So I think he, I'm not quite sure what theory he had. I think he had the four humours theory, that everything was responsible for imbalances of humours. Um, and that's black bile, yellow bile, I think too much blood. And too much pus or something? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, or phlegm. Phlegm, maybe phlegm, it was. That's it. Um, so, yeah, it was imbalances cause the uh, the illness and then you have to, like, reduce one or other of these substances in your body. So that's where bleeding comes from. If you're too hot-tempered, you've got too much blood, so you better bleed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, in the Roman times, there was also a guy called Galen, um, he was the court physician to the emperor during the Antonine Plague in like 165. It was pretty much for the entire reign of um, Marcus Aurelius. There was a huge plague all over the Roman Empire. And Galen actually started doing some dissection so that he could try and work out how the body worked a bit better. Um, he had some good ideas, um, but he didn't get everything quite right. I suppose based on your experience, it's difficult, isn't it, to, to work out cause and effect? Because I, I remember reading that a philosopher thought that plants ate soil because he, he noticed that soil levels in plant pots went down. But it's, of course, just getting compacted because of adding water to it. But he thought that plants ate soil. So you're just observing things and basing that on your observations. I suppose Galen was in a similar boat. Yeah, exactly. There were very much this kind of philosophical attitude to medicine of like, um, let's observe and draw conclusions from that. It wasn't so much that kind of scientific idea of let's do an experiment and try and disprove our theory. I just wanted to throw in a fun fact about Hippocrates, actually, because 
uh, the way in which he decided was sensible to kind of treat people for different diseases was quite based on what they ate. So he was really into diets. So he was actually kind of like the first dietitian or kind of Dr. Gillian McKeith type figure. Do we think that we'd be better or worse off with Hippocrates and Galen flanking Boris Johnson? I do love the idea of two like betogered people. Do you think you'd get Boris into a toga? He'd be all over it. What I would say about Hippocrates, when it came to like the female body, he had some pretty, um, pretty crazy ideas about um, what what was going on. Yeah, they just kind of assumed that women's bodies are basically deformed men's bodies or just not quite their men's bodies. Um, and yeah, inferior in some way, uh, biologically. Uh, yeah, and as you say, Alison, it just I think it just came from not enough actual observation of it, um, which I guess partly is, um, you know, the, the norms of ancient society are responsible for that, this kind of lack of access to women's bodies for observation or for experiments. But I mean, the fact that that continues in medical research today is at this point inexcusable. Yeah, it's nice to see some of the theories actually getting a bit reclaimed, like um, Hippocrates had this theory that women were kind of too wet. He thought that things were either kind of dry or wet and women were kind of too wet. So it's nice to see kind of Megan Thee Stallion and uh, Cardi B turning that into a solely positive attribute. I was just thinking about um, Trump's cure with um, coronavirus, if I can name it, um, about consuming bleach and possibly passing light through the body. It reminds me a little bit of, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Heraclitus, who was a uh, Greek philosopher, who... Um, he, he had dropsy, which is like an edema. It's a swelling. It, dropsy was, I think, as a as a term was used. I mean, it's in my family tree in the in the Victorian times as a cause of death. But it's like a swelling of water. I think it's a, a, a lymphedema or something. Um, and he reasoned that if you're full of water, how do you get rid of water? Well, you evaporate it with heat. So he, so some stories say that he climbed into a pile of manure and died because he because manure is hot so he thought it would dry himself out but actually it uh just killed him uh with the um with the fumes that came off it so i think i think that sort of reminds me odd cures for things that that seem reasonable but in fact like bleach does kill germs it will also kill you i feel like quite a lot of early philosophers tend to have like quite iconic deaths like I always think about, there's one called Chrysippus, who's an ancient Greek philosopher, um, who died by getting his donkey drunk, trying to feed it figs, and finding it so funny that he laughed himself to death. That is funny. What a way to go. I also have heard a story about um, uh, an ancient Greek playwright, who I don't know the name of, who was killed when a bird of prey dropped a tortoise on his head because birds of prey tend to drop um, hard-shelled animals on rocks to try and break the shell to get into the yummy, gooey goodness inside. And they mistook his bald head for a rock. And I don't know if I've made that up or if that is true. Yeah, that is, it's a true story. Um, I think we don't have any kind of specific proof, but yeah, the um, ancient uh, tragedian, kind of the first of the big three, Aeschylus, was said to have died 
uh, by having, yeah, like a tortoise or, or a turtle dropped on his head by a bird. I don't want to sound, you know, rude, but if I was watching that, I'd probably die laughing. So it would be like a, just a terrible scene <laughs> of double tragedy. So we've talked we've talked about about plagues and diseases. So are there any particular plagues or diseases or pandemics or because I suppose you couldn't really have a pandemic in the ancient world because people weren't getting on a Ryanair flight to Marbella for five pounds, were they? They were kind of I I would imagine aside from trade routes, people didn't really go on holiday abroad or 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 get, travel too far if you were the average person but I suppose armies probably brought disease and I imagine that that tradesmen brought disease as well. Uh, the kind of big Athenian epidemic that happened uh, was two years into the Peloponnesian War which was this war in Greece between Athens and Sparta and this plague uh, afflicted Athens. It killed uh, about 75 to like 100,000 people, which doesn't sound kind of loads compared to kind of today's statistics. But at the time, that was about a quarter of the population. So it's a lot of people dying of plague. Uh, it actually also killed the, the Greek uh, sort of general and leading politician at the time, Pericles. So it's kind of the equivalent of a prime minister or a president of a country dying of plague. Um, but this was, yeah, in the middle of a war and the Spartans were planning an invasion of Athens, which they actually abandoned out of fear of coming into contact with all of these infected people in Athens. The plague was so bad that they just decided to pack up and go home and do the war another day, basically. I don't know if you guys have heard of the Hittites. Uh, they were a people, yeah. um, a kingdom in, in Anatolia in the middle of the um, second millennium BC. The Hittites were pretty big kings uh, in that area, and they were sort of rivals to Babylon and Egypt. But at one point, uh, they took advantage of the turmoil after Tutankhamun's dad, who was this king called Akhenaten. And uh, they invaded some Egyptian lands in, in the Middle East, in the Near East, sorry. And uh, they took all these Egyptian prisoners. And unfortunately, the Egyptian prisoners all had plague. So it killed their king and essentially contributed to the decline of the Hittite dynasty. Barney, can we just clear this one up? What is the difference between the Middle East and the Near East? I think that the Middle East is a, is a more modern term, whereas the Near East kind of refers to um, the area which was so important for ancient history, um, which also includes the Eastern Mediterranean, most of the Levant um, and over to it can be over to Iran, which you wouldn't really call Near East. I was quite interested by the fact that taking prisoners meant that, that they caught plague and it killed their king, because there's quite a few instances in history of people who might have a herd immunity existing, and then they go and encounter another set of peoples and just kill them with disease. I believe that's exactly what happened with settlers and tradespeople coming from Europe to America. And it wiped out a lot of um, Native Americans. So how did people sort of respond to pandemics? Because at the moment, our response to a pandemic is we've gone into lockdown, we've worn face masks, we've we've set up um, different shopping um, rules so and social distancing and having bubbles. How did people used to respond to pandemics? I know that in the case of this Hittite plague that I just mentioned, uh, <clears throat> the king who was killed had a great name, Shupi Luliuma, 
Nice. Yep. Shupililiuma died. And 20 years later, his son, his second son, actually, his other son died by the plague as well. His uh, his second son, Mursili, who was another great king of the Hittites, he dedicated a bunch of uh, prayer tablets saying, please, for God's sake, let's end this plague. It's been 20 years now. The Hittites are in pieces. Um, and those are in Istanbul Museum. So prayer is one way to do it. Yeah, definitely in the Antonine Plague, um, which was in like AD 165 to uh, 189 during the reign of Marcus Aurelius. He's not really remembered for plague, um, but yeah, there was a massive one. So there was, yeah, there were a lot of offering, offerings to Apollo. Um, sometimes he was called Apollo Alexia Kakos, which means averter of evil, um, which I think is quite a cool extra name to have. But yeah, Apollo was blamed for both causing plagues and he was asked to stop them. <laughs> But there was also a, um, a god of healing called Aesculapius, um, and he, uh, I mean, his sanctuaries were essentially the ancient equivalent of hospitals. People go there and expect to get treatment, not necessarily from doctors, but sometimes just from priests, or just being in the presence of, of the god um, would, they hoped, help them recover. Why did plagues used to last so long? Because we, we obviously have vaccines now and a bit more awareness about germ theory and how, how disease spreads. But, but um, was there a sort of an awareness of why, why disease lasted so long? I briefly like to go against the law on this one a bit because, yeah, it's, it's definitely true that diseases seem to linger a lot more in ancient times. I suppose it is probably mainly because of our, our medical abilities to, I mean, if we look at the coronavirus vaccines, how quickly, if there's like an economic interest and a kind of social interest uh, to get a vaccine made, how quickly, um, if there's money behind it, how quickly we can find solutions to these problems. Um, but kind of in living memory and kind of recent memory, the HIV AIDS pandemic lasted for, for decades, um, largely because it was mishandled by governments and kind of uh, governments not taking it seriously and not deciding to put into the resources to um, try to, to tackle it and find uh, solutions to it and to, to stop people dying, essentially. Um, so I think, yeah, even, even in kind of recent memory, there are kind of um, diseases that do have this uh, epidemic status that that lasts for decades. So I think it, it really depends on uh, how it's handled kind of socially uh, in terms of policy and then also um, what the disease itself is and kind of how easy it is to find a solution. I think I could even I could even back that up by going doubly against the law here um, by saying that there's a great historic plague which um, I would probably put at the opposite um, tonal end of the scale to the um, incredibly serious HIV AIDS pandemic, um, which was the dancing plague of 1518 uh, that happened in Strasbourg, uh, where people just danced for days on end, but that sort of just petered out. Didn't they, didn't they pin that to an ergotism um, issue in bread, which would, would have petered out because ergot is a disease that, that causes you to hallucinate and, and um, participate in behaviours that might be seen as sort of speaking in tongues or dancing um, until you drop and then once once that's passed out of everyone's system or they've died from dancing too hard then that would end or is that a myth? I I really I'm really glad that we've got onto Ergo actually because I think it's one of the most amusing like answers that historians and archaeologists will tend to drum up for anything that they can't really explain. Well, it's I don't know. 
Yeah, it's always just ergot. It's like, oh, what was going on at the Salem witch trials? Ergot. Why did all these, why did all the bog buddies in Denmark and Ireland go so willingly to their death? Ergot. Why was everyone dancing in Strasbourg in 1518? Ergot. I think that's like the archaeologist equivalent. There's quite a famous archaeology program that was on Channel Four for a very good number of years, which is fantastic. Um, but I don't know if I can name it. But quite a lot of the time, if there's something that can't be explained, if there's some strange markings on a rock and it's not ogham or cuneiform, um, it's just spiritual. It's spiritual. What's this for? It might have just been like a a a peg for a bag of ancient crisps. Yeah, it's funny you should mention pegs because it's usually like phalluses, isn't it? They're like, oh yeah, this is a this is a religious object. This isn't anything untoward. This is very much this must be for religion. This this kind of essentially <laughs> ancient dildo. <laughs> Every time I drew a phallus uh, in a textbook when I was little, uh, someone came along years later and said this guy was really in tune with his religious side. That is it. That's what you were doing all this time, and you got detention for that. You should have gotten a promotion to head boy. I was misunderstood. You were. So religion and medicine seems to have a huge overlap through history. But I don't know if that's me thinking about that from a sort of Christian slant, because I live in a, um, a, a country that has a church um, system. But what, what, what are your thoughts on religion and medicine and the overlap that happens there? I guess it's just trying to explain things that aren't immediately explainable, if that makes sense. Yes, especially a lot of early religious stories are all about just trying to make sense of the world. Um, and especially in Greek and Roman mythology, then that then gets more and more elaborate. Like, why is this constellation like that? Why is this tree here? <laughs> oh, it was someone who got turned into a tree. <laughs> um, or why does this rock look so anthropomorphic? It's, yeah, it's just kind of trying to explain the world around them. And I guess diseases, because you can't, if you can't obviously trace the cause, um, or you don't necessarily know what the effect is going to be, or maybe the symptoms are different in everyone, um, trying to understand it means you usually just kind of kick it up <laughs> to to the gods to a higher power yeah and it's it's not just diseases I guess because they they have gods of the sky and the sea and kind of things that you can see but then they also have gods of kind of concepts like love and, and human emotions like anger and ecstasy so it's kind of every unseen force that we all experience kind of in our in our lives uh there was kind of a god for that to explain it in ancient religion I'd be the god of like minor inconvenience I'd be the god of catching your jeans belt loop on a door handle as you try and go from one room to another i'd be the god of going to the fridge and opening it and wondering why the hell you were there i'd be the god of going into a room and forgetting why you went into that room in the first place leaving it and then going oh god i remember i'd be the god of like putting on a spotify playlist and then playing your most embarrassing song when it's on shuffle it sounds like you'd be a trickster god like hermes who's my favorite god does Hermes have anything to do with uh, with disease or, or illness or anything like that? No, he's the god of thieves, travellers. He's a messenger god as well, so god of communication. Um, but he, he, really, he really likes playing tricks on people. Is that why Hermes never deliver my parcels on time? Because <laughs> they're too busy being tricksters. Is Hermes the one with wings on his ankles? Yeah, that's the one. His um, Roman counterpart is Mercury. 
Hermes as Mercury is where we get Mercurial from, right, as a personality trait. I don't actually know what Mercurial means. Uh, it's like uh, sort of flighty, a bit unpredictable, can often swing between a number of extremes or, or different states. That does sound like me now you mention it, especially when I'm hungry. Yay, we found your spirit god, as it were. Well, isn't Hermes a psychopomp? Which means a spirit guide or a soul guide who guides someone into the afterlife. Yes. I love the word psychopomp. What's the river called? The river's called something, isn't it? The Styx. The Styx, that's it. And is it Sharon, the the person who boats you across? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Charon. Yeah, it's like a hard CH at the... Okay, so it's not Sharon then, <laughs> running, running a ferry service. Is that where we get putting coins on people's eyes to pay the ferryman? Mm-hmm. If the Babylonians maybe didn't have their coin on the eyes thing, um, at a lot of archaeological sites of, of, of houses and homes, they found a lot of these little, um, they look like cups without a bottom. A bit like, you know, when you're at a construction site and you see those bins all lined up where they chuck all the waste down from the first, second floors, whatever. Oh, they look really fun. Like really fun slides. Yeah, they look really like the cursed slide, the danger slide that you wouldn't probably be able to use without really injuring yourself. So if you imagine lots of little clay pots arranged like that, uh, they believe they had to bury the dead uh, within the house um, because outside of the house was was uh, vulnerable to like depredations by scavengers and ghosts and stuff like that. And that if you weren't buried in the house, you'd be wondering. wandering the sort of the steppe basically forever, wandering in the wilds. Um, so they'd have to feed the dead that were buried under the floors in their house. So they'd pour water down into these little tubes. Oh God, swampy grandma. I swear I've heard that people could book mourners, professional mourners to turn up at ancient funerals. In terms of mourning, it was seen as actually being quite political because they had these public funerals sometimes in in times of war, for example, um, in ancient Athens. And Pericles, the general I mentioned earlier, uh, actually kind of made a famous speech and um, put some rules in place to stop people mourning so much publicly because he was sort of scared that it was going to descend into, you know, rioting or or whatever else might happen. Um, It was also a very uh, gendered um experience like it would always be women that were kind of allowed to mourn very publicly and very uh kind of emotionally whereas men were expected to kind of internalize that in a sort of more toxic masculinity way so yeah that that goes kind of way back and if i can hop on there at the end of what you've just said and just say that now of course we know better and that it's healthy for everyone to have a good cry and that men shouldn't feel that they should bottle emotions up I think that's a wholesome thing to end that that funeral <laughs> section on. That men, if you feel like you need to talk about something or be emotional, please do. So what have we learned going against the law on pandemics today? So I've, I've learned that um, pandemic is a relatively new thing um, or, it's, or it becomes more frequent in modern times just because of the scale of travel that we think about nowadays. So we travel far more and far greater distances than people used to. So epidemics or endemics were more common in the ancient world. Oh, I loved as well the uh, Heraclitus and the, like, burying himself in manure. 
definitely appreciated learning about the um the plague in Athens and how um kind of battle and the movement of soldiers is just as much of a big thing in the transmission of disease as something that we might think more about uh, like trade um which is maybe more relevant nowadays that's it for against the law this week join us next time when we'll be talking about the crown and all things ancient marriages see you next time bye <laughs>